Hello and welcome to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. I'm Associate Editor Seth Barron, your host for today's episode. We're joined by a special guest, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Eric Adams served for more than 20 years as a New York City police officer, was elected to the State Senate where he served four terms, is currently in his second term as president of the Borough of Churches, and is also a candidate for the mayoral election to take place next year. This interview was recorded last week, and there have been some developments since then, including the planned shutdown of the New York City subway system every night, which was anticipated in our interview. Now, my discussion with Eric Adams. You know, I don't know how long it takes to walk 10 blocks nowadays because there are no crowds out there. That's a good point that this, this could be, uh, this, well, we can, we can make it like 20 blocks, 15 blocks. <laughs> uh, how are you doing, uh, Borough President, with the, the lockdown? Uh, good. Uh, I think that the city uh, divided its human capital into essential and non-essential employees. I consider myself as an essential employee. Uh, I find it challenging to tell police officers to uh, patrol and train operators to drive the trains and others to do a job and and I'm home. So for the last 40 plus days, uh, I have been sleeping at a borough hall and doing the things that I believe essential employees are supposed to do, and that's give reinforcement to those who are on the ground. Wow, you're sleeping in your office. Do you have a cot? Yes, I have a cot and a shower and a few dumbbells, and I've learned to use the stairs as my stair masters. I run up and down to the third, fourth floor a few times. It's a great workout. Well, it sounds like you're a, a model uh, civic official. <laughs> let me ask you, let me ask you, Borough President, New York City is facing um, a catastrophic fiscal outlook. Our budget could take a huge hit, maybe 10 to 15 billion dollars in lost revenue over the next 18 months. Uh, and there's different, there's different voices about how this should be addressed. Some people say it has to be on the revenue side. Albany needs to step up and increase taxes. Other people say, well, you know, the city budget is, has really ballooned in the last eight years. Maybe we need to cut back. What, what are your thoughts on this? I believe it's a combination. Uh, number one, we need real help on the federal level. We can't get away from that. Uh, but I also believe we need to look at um, what we have been doing for many years. Uh, clearly, you go back uh, after 9-11, uh, Mayor Bloomberg was hit with a about a, over $4 billion, around $4.8 billion budget deficit. And he went to the real estate community to raise taxes. And then in 2008, uh, we went through a very um, hard financial crisis. And again, he hit the real estate community. And I don't think that if we have a predicted $6 billion budget deficit, according to the state controller, and it could be anywhere between six to 10 billion. Uh, we cannot continue to go to the same sources that we've done. Uh, we really overtaxed the real estate industry uh, throughout the years, and we need to look at alternate uh, methods to raise cash and raise revenue. One, uh, I believe that we need to look at our own budget. I think there should be a 4% uh, cut across all agencies. And then we have to run our city better. 
I said this over and over again, long before coronavirus, uh, that we are hemorrhaging money uh, in this city because of the dysfunctionality of running our city agencies. We are in uh, conflict with each other, and you know we continue uh, to pay uh, over the course on too many consultants. Uh, how much money we spend on consultants in the city. Uh, I think that we have to really take a close look on how we run the city in a more efficient fashion. What What do you think about the proposal to institute a wage freeze across all um, municipal employees? Mayor de Blasio negotiated a fairly generous uh, set pattern of contracts when he first came in, including retroactive raises for the teachers, some of which hasn't even been paid off yet. Um, so basically next year we're supposed to pay out, I don't know, half a billion or a billion dollars on work that was performed 10 or 12 years ago. In such a major emergency, the city could freeze, put, put a halt on these payments. W what's your opinion about all of that? No, I don't support that at all. Uh, I think the heart and soul of this city uh, is the uh, middle class. Uh, when you look at what we have done, particularly to property owners, and I'm not talking about uh, those who have hundreds and thousands of apartments, I'm talking about the single family house, one and two and three family households, uh, the taxes in comparison to outside the city where you have uh, tax caps. Um, our taxes have gone up astronomically. The cost of living um, has also increased um, astronomically. And the everyday civil servant is the heart and soul of this city. And as we saw during this crisis, uh, they're on the front line. And th that is the essential employee for the most part. And so I don't support um, doing anything that's going to hurt the middle class. We decimate the middle class in this city, in this country. Um, we need to start thinking about how do we really stabilize the middle class and make sure that they're able to continue to stabilize the city. So I don't support a, a, a wage freeze at all. Fair enough. What about the idea of reassigning workers? Um, for instance, right now, you know, there are thousands of school safety agents who basically, as far as I can tell, aren't doing very much. Could they, would you support uh, asking them to work as contact tracers or in some other function that might, you know, that the city might need right now. Without a doubt. And, and not only that, we can't be just a, and what I mean by just a, we can't be uh, just a school search, a safety uh, employee or agent as they're called, uh, just a sanitation, sanitation employee. We have to now step outside of those traditional roles and redefine them as we redefine the city. For example, of uh, the Department of, Department of Education had to give out 300,000 uh, iPads. And they had a contract through Federal Express and DHL to distribute them. They still have not distributed all of them to low-income uh, students. Almost 55,000 have yet to be delivered. We could have done a better job by uh, breaking down the delivery by precincts, allowing our precinct uh, community affairs officers and youth uh, coordinators to actually identify the students in those areas and go and deliver those uh, iPads to those students, keeping account of what, you know, what they're receiving 
making sure that they were online. Right now, we don't have a real accounting of the attendance record of our students. They can play a more vital role in many of these roles that our civil servants are playing. Some of them are eager to do more and to get more involved in improving the city, but we are restraining them from doing so. And I think we need to be more creative and not just put people in one category and, and allow them to go beyond what they're doing now. Even our teachers, look at our teachers. I sent many of our teachers away to learn yoga, mindfulness, and, and, and to deal with stress we can do a better job in our schools if we empower our teachers to deal with some of the mental health crises that are impacting us. So all of us have to do more and go beyond the traditional roles that we are assigned to. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but you are in the running to become the next mayor of the city. And a crucial aspect of the city is its businesses and particularly its small businesses, which are being hammered currently with the lockdown. What do you see as the future of small business in the city? How, how can we come back? And what would you do to, to help small businesses? And that's a real question. Uh, when you look at the number one thing my small businesses are stating, whenever I communicate with them, either through a walkthrough or through various forums that we've held, they say the same thing. The city has no business being in their business. The city is in the way of development of our businesses, either through taxation, through citations, uh, the lack of access to capital, uh, given our businesses uh, uh, many ways of not being able to grow the bureaucracy, trying to navigate everything from the Department of Building to getting a basic permit uh, to open. Uh, when you really examine uh, what the city is doing, you question how do we go from being the Empire State to a place that we destroy empires. Uh, when you see the expansion of and the lack of expansion of our businesses, the challenges they have of navigating the bureaucracy, that's the, the number one thing I hear from my business community is that the challenge of doing business in this city, when you do a comparison of doing a development, de developmental housing project in a place like Maryland and look at the dollar amount and then compare it with doing a developmental project here in Brooklyn, Queens, or Manhattan, uh, you'll see the cost difference of just how costly it is to do business in the city. And it's because of too much uh, regulations and too much uh, of agencies that are in the way of seeing the development of businesses. And you see it on, on every level. And it hurts when you have to spend a year uh, just to get the permit or just to get a utility company to turn on your water and gas and your restaurant owner, then you are not hiring a cook, a dishwasher, a low-skill or underskilled employee. And we do a terrible job of being business friendly in the city. And we can't continue to do that as we, are, as we evolve um, post-coronavirus because the business community is going to change. Some of our businesses are not going to reopen and we have to reshape how we do business in the city. Well, welcome words, welcome words. Um, another major institution in New York City is the subways. Uh, and that's really the backbone of New York in terms of how people get to work and everything. It's like a defining feature. Well, right now the subways are in total crisis. Ridership is off 90, 95%. And disturbingly, it seems like the subways have become the 
you know, tacitly become kind of an overflow annex for the uh, homelessness service complex. Uh, the subways are filled right now with homeless people who are just living there, probably because they don't want to go to shelters. Um, how do we rescue the subways? How do we deal with the homelessness crisis? I know that's two major problems, but they really seem to have collided now. How can we bring the subways back, make them safe, and get the homeless off the subways and into shelter or somewhere else? I'm, I'm truly concerned uh, about the city, and I stated this uh, post uh, pre-coronavirus. I'm seeing something that is extremely frightening of what is happening to our city. Uh, the prerequisite to prosperity is public safety. People come to the city and they build and they open businesses and they raise families because what the city has to offer, how safe it is. And I think far too many people are making decisions uh, that they were not here um, from when we were having 2,000 homicides a year in the early 80s and almost 98,000 robberies and every car had a no radio sign uh, posted on his windowsill. And we were living in a state of fear. At that time, I was a transit cop. I rode the subway systems uh, from eight at night to four in the morning and graffiti was everywhere, crime was everywhere. And we labored hard with people like uh, Jack Maple and Bill Bratton and others and used CompStat and other technology to turn around our city in real time crime fighting. Many people forgot that. And when you see the lacks on, uh, we don't need police officers in the subway, when you hear calls about uh, people in mass numbers jumping the turnstile and gl putting glue in the turnstile, a total uh, dis uh, disarray that is in front of us right now. And it didn't happen because of coronavirus. There was a slippage that was taking place uh, repeatedly over the years, and we need to be very conscious of that. You do not fix a window to re-break it. And I believe what we need to do is ensure that number one, our shelters are clean and safe. They cannot be extension of, of dormitories in uh, prisons. I was the uh, ranking crime and correction uh, committee a person when I was in the state center and I visited many of our correctional facilities and I saw that dorm at, uh, atmosphere, that's what you see in our shelters now. There must be a pathway to permanent housing. And you do that by uh, doing things such as micro units, giving people their, uh, their necessary support when they get out. You have different type of homeless. The ones you see on the subway are homeless homeless men and women with mental health issues. And some of them, if you put them on their proper medication, uh, they're able to really hold down a normal lifestyle, but you need to give them the counseling that they, that they deserve. And also we have to be honest about uh, what we did several years ago by closing many of our mental health institutions. The advocates basically stated close um, the living mental, mental health institutions without ensuring that we gave support on the outside. And many of these people you see on the street now, living on the subway, talking to themselves. Some are violent, like we saw in Chinatown where four individuals were killed. We have to be extremely honest. There are some people that are not capable uh, to live without round-the-clock attention and round-the-clock care. And that is who we see on our subway system. And we have to have a new discussion about using a modern-day 
of state-of-the-art, humane ways of putting people in psychiatric centers where they are getting the proper care and treatment that they don't harm themselves and harm others. I mean, even short of actually committing people to psychiatric centers, New York State has a very robust um, assisted outpatient therapy law, uh, Kendra's Law, which you know puts people under a judge's uh, watch to make sure that they're compliant with their medication and their treatment. Some people say that the current mayor has not actively sought the application of Kendra's Law. What, what's your take on that? Not enough. There's a level of reluctancy, and Kendra's Law is a good law because it allows, uh, it allows officials to ensure that a person is, is taking their medication, uh, making sure that they're not harming themselves and others. I don't think we apply it enough. I think there's a level of reluctancy in the application of it. This hands-off attitude is the wrong attitude because when people reach a point uh, which we would call a violent EDP, violent, violent emotionally disturbed person, they could be danger, dangerous to themselves and dangerous to, them, to, to others. And so I think that we need to uh, send a clear message to our law enforcement and other officials uh, that you will not be uh, in any way penalized for full use of Kendra's law. It's a very good law and we need to use it accordingly. So regarding crime, which you alluded to, uh, and, you know, as a former officer, it's you know, great to hear your perspective on this and as a transit officer, but the current numbers are alarming. Uh, murder is up, transit crime is up, which, you know, given the fact that ridership is so, so low, it really shouldn't be up. But at the same time, the city has released 1,500 people from Rikers Island, uh, you know, just set them out on the street. Um, do you think there's a relation there? And was that really the right thing to do? Predatory crimes, rape, robbery, burglary, homicide, uh, manslaughter, those serious uh, seven categories of predatory crime, uh, I'm extremely uh, hard on making sure people who commit predatory crimes should be incarcerated. When we did the new uh, bail reforms, and you looked at the items uh, that were on the list, it was clear that there were items on the list that you could not post bail or should not have been there, such as burglary, uh, burglary of a dwelling. You know, imagine someone uh, burglarizing a home, one and two, three homes on a block, a serial burglar, and the judge is unable to give them bail because they did not um, harm anyone inside. Uh, maybe they didn't get a chance to do so or assault, or carrying a weapon on school grounds. All of those crimes uh, should not be part of the no bail reform. I thought it was a big mistake. And I think that we need to, we, I ask that we reconsidered some of the crimes that were on the list. And then when you look at the release of the large number of inmates that were, at, that were on Rikers Island, I believe that anyone that was found uh, or was on the island because they were serving out of their year's, year's time because of a violent act, they should serve out that time. If they're there for a minor technical par parole violation, I don't think there was a reason for them to be there. And if it's a non-violent act, I don't think it was a reason for them to be there because it was very important that we dealt with the coronavirus spread that was there. I think it was extremely negligent, negligent on a part of the city 
that we didn't allow our correction officers to have um, personal protection equipment. They had to sue to get it. Uh, we had to keep in mind that those men and women that were on Rikers Island was put in harm's way. And if we could decrease the prison population without causing any a safety problem, I was in support of that. Let me ask you uh, about the future of Rikers Island, which, you know, until a few months ago, it sounded as though there was no question that the city was closing Rikers Island and we were going to build new borough-based jails. But given the current fiscal outlook, it sort of seems like maybe that's not going to be a top priority. What's your opinion about, about the future of Rikers Island? Should we reconsider and just build if we real, I mean, there's plenty of space there. If we want to have um, nice new jails, we could just build them there. Do you have an opinion on this? I think that everything is on the table of how do we close this fiscal gap? How do we close it around the areas of, of really dealing with the course of education, the cuts we're seeing in healthcare? Everything is on the table, and I think it's imperative uh, that we re-examine on what we're going to do by building the borough-based jails. Uh, I believe there was a great opportunity to transform Rikers Island into a new model of correctional uh, facilities uh, to allow training, job training, to kill the recidivist levels that we were experiencing. But to deal specifically, do we move um, full steam ahead with the borough-based jails? I think that needs to be part of the overall fiscal plan for the city on how do we pay for it, uh, how do we make sure that we can continue to have the city be viable if we move in that direction. I think that needs to be over, open for conversation. So here we are. Uh, we've been in lockdown for six, seven weeks. I mean, I've lost track. Now it seems that the curve has flattened you know, to a certain degree, there's fewer infections. And as the weather gets warmer, people want to go outside more. Um, what's your take? You know, we're, we're looking at maybe different parts of the state, different parts of the country are starting to move out of lockdown. At the same time, you know, New York City is really the worst hit. H how are we going to negotiate this, this transition? into moving the city out of lockdown? I mean, this is a major, a major issue. What, what's your take? It really is. Uh, one thing's for sure, uh, our uh, desire to uh, ensure that we do not uh, harm the city financially cannot get in the way of harming our families. This is a real crisis. Uh, two weeks ago, I lost five friends in one week. Um, one of them was a rookie police officer that I trained, and uh, she died from coronavirus. And I lost my mentor that talked me into politics, died of coronavirus. It just really it speaks to the extreme of who we are losing. And I don't think that we're out of the woods yet. I believe that we're still in a very dangerous place. And every uh, two weeks, I speak with my the presidents of my hospitals, and they are very uh, fearful uh, that in October and November, uh, coronavirus is going to come back with a vengeance. And so we have to be extremely careful so we can get it right the first time and not have to sort of revert back. We have to change how we do business. I think our office spaces, uh, our shopping habits, uh, all of us need to continue to practice social distancing. I uh, know we're all frustrated that, you know, those who have been indoors for a long period of time, but this is a new norm that we're going to have to start 
to address truth. And I think we need to be extremely cautious. And most importantly, we need to listen to the healthcare professionals. Uh, they know the answers and they should guide us through this. They should be the determining factors in should we return uh, to as much of enormity as possible. I don't think we should get in front of them. We have some great healthcare professionals, some great computer models that can show the spread of the virus. We need to do the testing that's needed to identify these hotspots. Dr. Riley over at Downstate Hospital, which is the center of the Epic Center, uh, he has indicated that a manner in which we should be testing and what he calls these hotspots to de identify which zip codes are dealing with this issue the most and make sure we get the resources there. We have to slow down and ensure that we don't continue to see uh, the uh, any new infections. Right now, the curve appears to be flattened. If we move too uh, rapidly, we could uh, we can cause it to not be flattened uh, in the future, and I'm concerned about that. I was in Washington Square Park the other day. It was a beautiful day, and there were a lot of people wandering around. You know, many of them wearing masks. You know, keeping some distance, but not an enormous amount. And there was a a, a patrol car going through, um, making an announcement. Oh, that the health department advises everyone to, you know, stay at home and practice social distancing. But no one was really paying attention to it. So as the weather gets warmer. And if we open up more streets to pedestrian traffic, you know, even though the basketball hoops are down, the parks are closed, the pools and beaches are closed, people will be out and about. There's a fine line here. I mean, some places like in China and Paris, they're very, the police are very strict and get involved. Do you think that, we, that there's a public safety component here? How are we going to enforce compliance? And that's a great question. I am concerned about a heavy-handed police approach because New York is different from China. You know, I've been back and forth to China six or seven times and their mindset and how the, the people of the country, how they think is different from uh, New York. We value uh, our freedom. We value uh, our movement. And this is extremely challenging for New Yorkers to be told uh, they what they could do and what they can't do is something that's at the heart and soul of what an American uh, is like. But realistically, uh, we had a public safety crisis. And it's unfortunate, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, this is only round one. We're going to be dealing with uh, viruses and superbugs. And uh, this is really uh, the future that's in front of us. Scientists have been talking about this for some time. And so we need to start now building in the proper training of uh, the proper education of uh, the proper mannerism of how do we uh, respond when we're given those directions. It took too long to educate New Yorkers on what shelter in place or pause, uh, the coordination was not there. I was in Canarsie, part of Brooklyn, um, when we were supposed to be sheltering in place and I stopped uh, to young men who were playing basketball. I pulled over my car and I spoke with them and said, you guys are supposed to, supposed to be social distancing. They said, what the hell is that? So, you know, so we were talking in the echo chamber. Not everyone uh, was, listen, was listening to the debriefings from the president, the governor or the mayor. Not everyone gets their information the same way. And so we need to start the process now of really educating people and having a soft touch 
uh, reinforcing, communicating, and letting people know on what it means to be prepared uh, not to have something, a pandemic of this magnitude. I think now that we've gone through it and we continue to go through it now, it is going to be easier to give some clear instruction. If it sounds like you, you may be the same age as I, but I remember during these uh, early, late 60s and early 70s, we used to get this, these sirens for the nuclear bomb. When we hear them, we do a drill of going under our desk and, mm -hmm. and getting the direction to the local shelter. And we were used to it. And that is where we are now. We need to get used to life with the viruses that we may get in the future. Straight talk from a former cop. Uh, <laughs> Borough President Eric Adams, thank you so much for joining us on 10 Blocks. It was a pleasure. If you, if you have any comments, you can leave them at iTunes uh, or on Twitter at hashtag 10 Blocks. Thank you, Borough President. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Take care and be safe. You too. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.